Okay, I am most uncomfortable. I'll just tell you that up front. This is a difficult thing for some reason. It's, I guess it's too disorganized in my mind here. But what do we, what did we talk about last week? What was, what happened last week? Yes. The. I caught it. I don't know. I have to open up the question. Yeah, the major sections of of um, chapter nine here. Well, the big thing was this is a uh, the response to Jesus telling them that he was going to be killed, delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him and. When he has been killed, he will rise three days later. So this was incomprehensible to them because the idea of them being, having a Messiah who was gonna die just could not compute because the Messiah, the promised one, was gonna reign as king and set up his kingdom. So dying doesn't fit into that. And so they were confused and they kind of just let it slide off of their, their minds. Um, the other, then subsequent to that, they were talking about who was going to be greatest. Again, part of the the coming kingdom thinking. Um, if there was going to be a kingdom, and they were Jesus's chosen ones, they're going to have a place of prominence in this. And so, that's uh, part of what he's was talking about. So the important thing for, from the, for this week is what Jesus said there in verse 35. Um, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. What is Mark's theme verse? Yes, what is the verse, the reference? We've only been doing this for six months, so. 1045. Thank you. And that says? That Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to die as a ransom for many. That's exactly right. So that's a big, difficult concept for the disciples in that context where they have been under oppression by the Romans. for a long time and were desperately looking for the Messiah and now they have concluded that Jesus is the Messiah and now he's telling them that he must die. But he's also telling them that they need to be servant of all, last of all and servant of all. So Then in verse 36, it says he took a child and set him before them. So that's the perspective that we have to have uh, today for us. So let's, can somebody, somebody be willing to read just, um, that's the role, getting ahead of myself here already. Let's uh, just go to 
at verse 42 today. Somebody just read that, please. Thank you. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So what did Jesus do just before he says this? Put a child in the midst of him? Yep, he brought a child and set him down and said this. Whoever receives a one child in my name receives me. And the interesting thing is that is that is also how we are to be when we receive Jesus. We need to come to him in simplicity and in complete faith. And no one better than a child, especially our own children, do that when no matter what the circumstance, they just have this incredible faith and confidence in their parent. Even, and it's amazing to me that even abused children still maintain this. They still expect their parents to be nothing but good to them. And we need to keep that in our minds and in our, in our, uh, day-to-day -day life, how we need to be trusting him, and not in ourselves, not in our abilities. You know, it's the crazy thing about critters, creatures that God has created and set here and given some, some um, selfness to, we automatically want to be independent. We think of ourselves as having autonomy as an option. That, and that is you know, the first thing that Satan appealed to with Adam and Eve was autonomy from God. Just they can make their own decisions. They can, make, they can figure out and know what it is that they, that is what is best for them. And there's no bigger lie on earth than we thinking what we know what is best for us. And here Jesus is saying that anyone who believes in him is very important and anyone who interferes with a person's trust in Jesus is in grave, grave danger. Right. Very, very serious business. So certainly, on, you know, right away, he's talking about the, uh, the child that he was holding there for them. If, if a child, which is what we all have been at one time, and are, if we believe in Jesus, we come to him as a child. And people need to treat new believers with great care and tenderness and to not do anything to make them stumble. Right. So did, as you read that verse, did you get the picture of what Jesus said is better for a person? 
rather than making a child stumble, it's better to have a large stone tied around their neck and thrown in the ocean. Let them perish, basically. Very thoroughly. Without <laughs> any, any option of, of release. And he's not just talking about a stone like a concrete block. He's talking about a millstone, specifically a millstone that is turned by a donkey. So these can be, you know, anyway from three to uh, ten feet in diameter. Uh, so it's the rock itself is going to weigh more than you do. So it's this is a an incredible picture of a terrible fate of someone who messes with children's faith in God. And and we really could stop today and just take that with us because this is incredibly serious business. But Jesus goes on then, if I could get someone to read the next little section here, which is 38 through 41. Joseph, if you'd put your hand up, you want to read that for us, please? 38 through 41. Says... Oh, wait, wait, wait. What am I talking about? That's from last week. Yeah, that was from oh, last yeah. week. Still, still, hold on, hold on there. So let's move on to 43 through, through 48. There you go. That's what we're after. Just what is that? What's with that? <coughs> so 40, 43 to 48. Yeah. It says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands go into hell, into the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye and having two eyes to be cast into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So he goes from uh, talking about someone making a child stumble to us being our own problem, making ourselves stumble. Um, you know, we, we all start out, as I said before, like child, children. And a mature disciple should never outgrow that childlike, pure trust that we start with. But that's, that's how we begin. As, as you begin, that's how you should continue on. We need to, to, in order to mature, we have to maintain that trust. But between being born and our going home to be with him forever, we do have options of backsliding, of stumbling, and being tripped up. And one of the one of the things we saw last week was 
Uh, John said that um, they, they saw someone casting out demons in Jesus' name, and because he wasn't one of their close followers, they tried to stop him. And what did Jesus say to that? He said, let them do it. Why? He gave a reason. That's right. Exactly right. Whoever isn't against him is for, uh, for him. Whoever isn't against him. And... And anyone who is teaching or preaching in Jesus' name, even if he isn't doing it the way we think he should be, he, he's still in a position of promoting Jesus, and he's, he's someone who can't very well say anything bad about Jesus easily at that point. So the same is with us. We need to be careful about stumbling. Um, if we are following Jesus, if we're followers of Jesus, then our speech should always be pro-Jesus. Our actions should always be pro-Jesus, right? So we talked a little bit about how we should deal with other people last week. Uh, and there is a need to be discerning about people, certainly. But we let the Bible do that and not our own thoughts and reactions. That's, a, that's actually a good point. Um, you know, I think it's easy to come across different people. And even us as believers, we're not always going to jive with everyone else. And we might think that someone, you know, has a weird attitude or living with something weird, but they're not necessarily a against the scripture. Or maybe if we come across someone that we're evangelizing alongside of, and we don't really personally like that approach, but it doesn't mean that, you know, God doesn't have them, that they're doing nothing wrong. Well, if we look at ourselves, uh, some of us have been believers a long time. Has anybody ever changed their minds or modified their belief system in their lifetime? Have you been just perfect your whole time there, Greg? Is it? I know certainly from the way I grew up, I had some, I can point to several wake-up calls that my thinking was not correctly in line with what the Bible actually said. We are often taught, well, especially if you grow up in a church, you're going to spend your whole childhood, like I did in Sunday school, you're going to be taught and taught and taught more than you study, study, study. And so it's easy to, to take up other people's attitudes or, or beliefs without really thoroughly comparing it with what the Bible says. And it's not just what the Bible says in one place, but what it says from cover to cover. Because you can easily get pointed and somewhat misdirected if you just focus on one part. Uh, especially, in my view, if you don't ever pay a whole lot of attention to the Old Testament and do all your life 
in the New Testament, you're going to miss some serious foundational teachings which apply today and will certainly apply in the future. There's a lot of good teaching there. So we need to be broad, broadly discerning and always being um, open to correction or redirection or having our direction more sharply focused. And what else interferes with all of this maturity? There's a principle of diversity in all of this. What do you think I mean by that? I'm being too vague. We're all different, aren't we? Yeah. We are all very different in our personalities, in our, in our environment, our upbringing. But God also has great diversity in what he expects his body to be doing. There are lots of different parts, and they don't look alike, and they don't function alike, and yet they are designed to work together in a very incredibly amazing way. There isn't anything more profound, I think, for God to use than our bodies in picturing the church, because our bodies are so incredibly complex, and they work together to keep the thing functioning. I did a really foolish thing a couple of weeks ago and cut my thumb with a hacksaw while I was cutting. And of course, you know, being the tough farm boy, I never pay much attention to cuts and scrapes because I've been doing that my whole life. But I did something not, not good because this thing started getting bigger and bigger uh -huh. and, and uh, redder and redder. And finally, I had to ask for some help in that regard. But the body is designed to fix things like that, no matter how foolish or what gross, terrible things that happen to us. The body instantly starts fighting that and trying to take care of it. If, um, if the insult is greater than the body's capacity, then you're in big trouble. But all the time, our bodies are fighting all these things that are floating around in the air being ingested every time we breathe and uh, every time we touch you know, our fingers to our tongues. It's just, you know, it's, a, it's just amazing what kind of a hostile environment that we actually live in. And yet our bodies, for the most part, survive. There are how many billions of people that have survived right now in this earth against all kinds of diseases and horrible conditions. It's, it's truly incredible. And that's a picture of what Jesus's body is doing in this world too. In spite of all the hostility is against it. And it's amazing, it will survive. Jesus said he will build it and the gates of hell won't overpower it. And we've seen that today. It's, it is very astonishing. Let's um, go back now and talk about 
how we can be stumbling blocks to ourselves and to others. Let's somebody read 18, Matthew 18, 7 for us. This is a corresponding uh, section that we're covering here in Mark. And Jesus says something really profound there to repeat what he says about the millstone. Yeah, I got it. It says, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. So, with the picture of the millstone, and then with this statement, we need to make sure that we are not being a stumbling block. Uh, it's just, it's, it's hard to convey in our comfortable, well-dressed environment here how horrible that situation is, how serious it is to stumble, to interfere with somebody else's faith. Instead of building it up, we had better not be found tearing it down. God does not look at that very graciously. Um, in James it says, you know, we all, we all do stumble at time, from time to time. But here we're talking about making other people stumble. I think I had another verse here. Machine, machine. So as you were reading there, the first thing was our hand. He says, if our hand causes us to stumble, what's the hand symbolizing here? It would be like deeds or words. Yeah, it's what we, what we pick up. What, what's a bad deed that our hand can do? Okay, well, you started at the top. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, that's exactly true. I mean, I was thinking of, you know, stealing a candy bar at the store or something, you know. Taking candy from a child. Yeah, or, or from its rightful owner, whoever that is. But yes, our hand can do all kinds of things um, bad and uh, so that's the first thing so so does everybody here have two hands <laughs> I think so. no, no one has cut their hand off yet has your hand ever done anything wrong has your hand ever slapped your brother or perished the thought your sister uh, but nobody we don't we don't do that why is that we don't cut off hands. Some cultures do. That's right. It's not what's outside of us that causes us the problem. It's what's between our ears that causes us the problems. Our hands don't cause us to sin. Our hearts, our minds cause us to sin. Yes? It's not the foods that you eat. It's what comes from your heart that causes you to be that's right. That's another thing our hand does. It. Our hands feed us, and our hands don't always feed us the best of things, do they? <laughs> but is it the hand that's doing it? Of course not. That's why there's really no benefit in cutting off the hand, because your heart is still going to be 
sinful. So what is the next thing on that list? And what does a foot do to cause us to sin? Walks us towards things. Goes where your brain tells it to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's not so bad, right? There's not many bad places we can go, right? Running after things, huh? Yeah, we spend a lot of time going places, don't we? And yet, again, we don't, no one, I don't know, they didn't cut your foot off, did they, Brittany? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's not the problem with the foot, but the point Jesus is making is that it's serious enough, our, 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 nature, our sinful nature is serious enough that it's it would be better if that was the problem that would be the solution but we can't do much about cutting off our hearts, can we? So what is the solution with our hearts? A new heart Okay and how does that happen? Isn't that amazing? It's one in which Christ resides. Well, and he gives us a new heart. He says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are gone, new things have come. So God is preparing us and providing for us what we actually need. Obviously, we can't fix our own hearts. As hard as we try, as disciplined as we get, may become, we do not resolve our own problem. Again, we go back to that childlike faith in God. And we have to have that everywhere we go all the time. Whether um, if you've ever taught or preached I imagine the early times you do that, you, you really feel very, very dependent. I, I feel so dependent on God doing something good through me because sitting there, whether it's early in the morning or late at night trying to get a lesson or a sermon together, you just don't naturally feel adequate because what we're dealing with here is way over our heads and we cannot do that on our own and we cannot manage our lives on our own. We need to have that pure, dependent, childlike trust in God every moment of the day. And then the last thing was the eye. Does everybody here still have two eyes that work? Partially. Yeah, Yeah, instead of 
getting rid of them. We spend a lot of time and money during our lifetimes trying to keep these things working right. And yet they are such a, such a uh, ready tool to be used to, to make us stumble. So I was just wondering if we could just uh, think about some of the things that we do and think and see to, uh, to uh, help our hands and our feet and our eyes facilitate our stumbling. You know, back in Mark 7, verse 7, Jesus talked about one thing that we do to, to make us stumble. Someone remember what that is? Anybody get there, look that up? What passage is it? Mark 7, 7. You may speak. Elevating tradition over the authority of scripture. Yeah, we'd rather listen to men than we would God. There's lots and lots of reasons for that. But sadly, we've figured out how that we can try to follow God by making man-made rules. Any other comments on this? No. Yes, thank you. I have a little story to tell. When I was growing up, we had family in Clifton, Texas, Central Texas. And it was my mom's aunt and uncle. We used to visit them a lot. They were really godly people. They weren't Baptist or they were sincere and older people. And their son married like Mike, and he and his wife had a little girl. And she was like the delight of their life because that was the only grandchild I had. And we were visiting them one time and had a nice dinner. And this little girl was kind of spoiled. I think she was about seven or eight years old. And the grandparents were, were, you know, they loved her and everything and let her do a lot of stuff. And she was being mean. And her grandmother said, I told you you could not play with this jewelry. I gave you some things to use, but I asked you not to use these. It was like probably a little bit nauseous stuff, maybe. And this child reached up and just slapped her grandmother. And I was like shocked because we never saw anything like that in that family. And the parents didn't say a word to this child. But an uncle did said, you shouldn't be doing that. You should not. You know you're not supposed to do that. But as she grew up, you know what happened to this child? Her hand withered. And I was the weirdest thing. I always remember that because there was no reason for that to happen in that family that we know of. And she never married or had children. 
but her parents never said a thing. I let her do that, and I was supposed to be a Christian too, but I didn't say anything. I was just so shocked seeing that happen, and I thought that was such a strange thing. We don't know the reason. Yeah. It might be God's reason, but it might be something we don't know. But I never forgot that because that was a bad thing. It was definitely God's doing. That's what I thought too. Well, he's sovereign. I mean. Yeah. And she was able to work and things. She had an office job somewhere. So I don't really remember which which hand it was. But it, it never corrected. It didn't change. She's still living. She's in the 60s now. Well, yes, our rules can be pro-God in managing our behavior and to keep us holy, but they can also make rules or fail to make good rules and principles that also put stumbling blocks in people's way. That sounded like one to me, yes. So you plan on going to Proverbs 4? Can I recommend Please go to Proverbs 4. I'm not very exhaustive in my illustrations here. All right, uh, Proverbs 4. <coughs> says, my son, give attention to my words and incline your ear to my saying. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in your midst, in the midst of your heart. Kind of going to what Dora was talking about, the, the heart issue is really the issue. It says, for they are life and those who find them and help and, and help to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence. So there we see the, the eye of that aspect, right? For from it flow the spring of life. Put it far away from put far away from you a deceitful mouth, and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet, and all the ways, all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Uh, turn your foot from evil. So we see all the same kind of illustrations in yep. that passage of the hand, the foot, and the eyes, and how we need to turn from them and really focus on the heart. How the heart is the heart of the issue. Indeed, indeed. So any other ways that we easily create an environment for stumbling? Such as not paying attention to the Bible, not reading regularly in disciplined manner, Avoiding gathering ourselves together to be taught, to learn. <clears throat> Putting ourselves in bad situations, going places we know we shouldn't be. Putting ourselves at risk, yeah. And it's interesting that that seems to be the, <clears throat> the uh, addiction of our current age, especially among young people, uh, putting themselves at risk for the thrill of it. Uh, jumping off of tall buildings with bungee cords or um, I've got two well my niece's two sons just love to do the speed wing thing get up on a hike up a mountain put their wings on and jump off and fly down the mountain at crazy speed hoping they can arrest their descent at the <coughs> timely 
manner. Oh. It's not worse than flying an airplane, is it? <laughs> it is. There are <laughs> more positive means of control. But one could say that. There are people that... Uh, that's a different the subject where we could talk some more. But yes. Well, you know, we all get on, well, most of us get on the freeway and go 80 miles an hour passing people a couple of feet away at 80 miles an hour. You know, it doesn't always turn out well. But to do things deliberately for the thrill is a little different than taking necessary precautions and minimizing risk. In all of our practices, whether you're a doctor or a truck driver or a pilot, you're, you examine the risks, you see what mitigating things you can do to reduce those things, and that's how we need to think about our spiritual life. And going places where you know you have an affection for and maybe used to do, probably isn't mitigating risk by doing that. Serving the block with Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> you would have to mention that, huh? <laughs> For an open parking space. Yeah. <laughs> and certainly, I mean, for me, it's always been a challenge to uh, stop setting our minds on the things of the earth, but setting our minds on things above. And that surprisingly becomes easier as we get older, or at least for me. I'm a whole lot less interested in doing all the things I wanted to do when I was a kid. I really don't care now if, if I can't fly another day. That's, a, that's fine with me because I know there's gonna be a lot of flying available without wings coming up and we'll be able to do things we never even imagined doing on our, on our amazing current environment, this beautiful, beautiful world. Even the good things that God has provided for us, such as eating and, and um, drinking, there's so much of that that is easily perverted and easily can cause us to stumble And I also put worry on there. That's another thing that's easy to, to fall into, if, especially if you have a family that you're responsible for or other people you're responsible for. It's easy to get into a habit of worry and, and doubting God and forgetting our own place and our own um, calling. Really like that... Uh, First Peter says, you know, make certain about God's calling and his choosing you, because if you're sure on that, then, then that makes it, in fact, he even uses the word stumble, that you're, you're, you're less likely to stumble if you're conscious of his call of you and his directing of you where you're at and where you're going. And one other thing that we need to watch out for, I would say, just because of my own experiences, be careful of 
getting tired. Tired people do foolish and dangerous things. They put themselves in very uh, sorry about my stumbling over words here, but it's a good environment to stumble is when you're worried, when you're not, when you're worried. Yeah, we can talk about worry a long time. We won't. And the most important thing is, of course, is the body. We are dependent on each other. We are utterly interdependent with each other. We are utterly not independent. Let's keep our minds on things. So here in these verses, Jesus repeated himself and gave us these warnings three different times. Uh, if you'll, I'm sure you noticed as you were reading that some of those verses were marked out separately with brackets or italics or something to show that those the repeating of the the uh, worm does not die in the fire is not quenched. So somebody was helping God out there and decided that they needed to be inserted after each of those phrases. It actually in the older manuscripts only appears in verse 48, which applies to all three, three descriptions there. Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's talking about Gehenna, the word for hell comes from um, two Greek or Hebrew words transliterated the, the valley of Hinnom and the valley of Hinnom was the ravine where they does anybody know? You know, okay, tell us what is it? Dump or trash pit. Yes, where all the garbage went uh, they say it constantly had Fire burning, smoldering all the time, smoldering and stinky pit. That's yeah. yeah, where they would put the leftovers, the refuse from the sacrifices, among lots of other garbage that just became their garbage pit. So they would try to keep it clean and sanitary by burning it, but there's a lot of stuff that doesn't burn and just is filled with worms and all kinds of foul stuff is uh, I grew up on a farm I know what a barnyard is I know what stinking stuff is but this is magnified with all kinds of other other decomposing garbage of all kinds and yes it's always smoldering and it's always full of worms and the worms never kill the fire and the fire never kills the worms it's just always a state of a picture of our own decaying self and God's judgment of fire to come. A very, I should have had a good odiferous illustration here, but I, I assumed that would probably be going over the edge and maybe helping someone to stumble, so I didn't do it. Minor would be driving by the sewage treatment plant on I-15 
in the summer when it's nice and warm and it's blowing that lovely smell across the highway and across Main Street. That's just a, that's, it's nothing like that. A minor sample. Yeah. You go to a third world country where there's raw sewage in the streets and they have a play that trash pit where they dispose everything. And it's nice and hot and humid and that wind is blowing up there. For me it was Korea because they they For their fields, for the rice fields, they would suck raw human sewage out of the the public bathrooms, and they would just take that straight over. They they call them honey trucks, so they'd suck that out, and then they would dump it right on the fields, and they'd flood the fields and start planting the rice. So in the summer, when the wind was blowing, you can imagine what it would smell like. It was very noticeable. <laughs> Liner. Just another analogy. <laughs> Brenda said she's never eating rice again. <laughs> so that statement actually <clears throat> comes from Isaiah 66. And, and there it's Jesus is, or God is talking to Israel about punishing them because they uh, choose their own ways and their soul delights in their own abominations. So he is going to choose their punishments and bring on them what they dread. Because he called and no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. They did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. Then they will, then later on in the chapter, He's talking about the end times. Uh, they will go forth at, at Jesus' second coming. After he comes again, then he is going to destroy all of his enemies and they will be left on the ground for people to, to look at. Pretty amazing thing. Pretty astonishing prophecy we're looking ahead for. So the last, the last thing, uh, okay, this I was just gonna skip over, thank you. Went through that already. So the last two verses there, would someone care to read for us, 49 and 50? Thank you. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So what does that mean? Pretty curious, isn't it? Salt and fire. So what do we think of as when we think of salt? What's the first thought that comes to you if you're sitting in church? Someone talks about salt. The opposite of salt is bland, so. Okay, so we're talking about seasoning there to give, to give flavor. And we are to be that to the world. Very good. 
Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth. So that's the first thing. We are to be salt and light. So he's saying, telling us that we are to be salted with fire. That's a curious illustration, isn't it? So according to the commentaries, this is the this, these two verses are the hardest thing in the Bible to define. He, nowhere else does he really explain this. So, but it looks to me to be pretty simple without getting too complex. You know, he's talking about judgment beforehand, or, you know, the stumbling and the worm doesn't die and the fire isn't quenched. We are all purified with fire. We have trials. We sing a song here. Thank you for the trials, for the fire, um, because it does purify us. It, God's judgments of fire on us being little and temporary serve as a purifying agent for us to keep our minds on the things that are they're supposed to be on and not um, being distracted by other things. And the world, our world, especially our world in America, is so full of distractions. So, so full of distractions. And if, if you don't know about them, they put a great big signs to let you know about them all the way along. As we drive, we're being told about things that we should want and that we need. And so it's good to have, have uh, God's judging us with limitations of um, various kinds to keep us pure, more pure, and yeah, and seasoned. We should be good tasting. We should not be bland in our world, in our speech. Um, there's one other place that um, Jesus talks about fire. Does anybody think about what that is? And which one is that? Judgment and the second coming? That's right, the second coming. And Peter talks about that. to read, yeah? No. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> well, I'll just go to Second Peter. Uh, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought we be in holy conduct and godliness. So, um, also, uh, John the Baptist said that uh, Jesus 
The one is coming who will baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So that's a broadly and generally and in most cases fire is a is a is used as judgment. Yeah, I found that. It's Matthew twenty five forty one. Oh. It says then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me a curse once into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devils and his angels. And forty six says these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Fire is not something that we want, but in small cases we need it, just like we do in our in our physical world. We we do need fire, but it has to absolutely be controlled and serve its purpose. So anyway, for for our, uh, the last verse there, the 49, we will be salted with fire. Very curious expression, but we understand that we need to be purified and preserved, and God uses little fires to help us with that. The, but then we are to be salt, and we are to maintain our saltiness. Um, we are to be um, preserving and preserved and helping each other stay, stay pure and not defiled. And, and at the end there, this last phrase to them, be at peace with one another. So that's looking directly back to what the, the disciples were arguing at the beginning of this whole section about who was who's the greatest and who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom who's so it, what we need to do is being humble what is instead of being lording over people what is our instruction to serve to serve yes we're to wash each other's feet we are to be humble the greatest is the one who is the, the least the servant and so we are to be serving each other, not being in competition with each other. There isn't any, any competition here in being the greatest in the kingdom. Our servanthood is the value that lasts through eternity. Because even in eternity, we'll still be Jesus' servants. We are not going to be gods in our own worlds. We are going to be servants of the only God. Any other comments? Thanks for sitting patiently while I mumble my way through this one. Yes, sir. When I, when I read these verses about uh, it, it reminds me uh, in Peter, he quoted the Old Testament saying, be holy as I am holy. God is so serious about sin uh, Jesus gave us these radical examples of cutting off our hands, cutting off our feet, poking out our eyes, to tell us to be, to separate ourselves from whatever it is that causes us to sin. The idea of cutting off your hand or whatever, separating yourself from those things that cause us to sin and be holy as God is. That's the, the whole idea to me is He's trying to emphasize how serious God is 
about sin. Sometimes we're kind of nonchalant about it. Uh, I'll sin and ask God to forgive me and be okay. Jesus saying, God doesn't take that Indeed, we are going to be very surprised, I am sure, in eternity with who is, who really was being the holy ones in this life. Anyone else? Thank you for sitting here and not walking out. That is your prerogative at any time, but uh, let's go enjoy each other for a while. And we've got 15 minutes. Thank you.